Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and welcome to this AI event, COVID-19, a food supply crisis or a hunger crisis. My name is Vincent Smith, and I serve as director of the American Ent- Enterprise Institute's Agricultural Studies Program, as well as a professor at Montana State University. This morning it is my privilege to serve as moderator for this event. And now I'd like to introduce the panelists. Um, and I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll be speaking. Dr. Joseph Glauber is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He previously spent more than 30 years at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where he served as the department's chief economist until his retirement from USDA in 2015. His current research focuses heavily on domestic and international agricultural policy and in the current moment on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on food production and distribution. Our second panelist is Dr. Diane Whitmore Schatzenbach. She is the director of the Institute for Policy Research and the Margaret Walker Alexander Professor in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University. She's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. The importance of her work on early childhood education and major public policies such as the SNAP program has been recognized at the highest levels of academia through her recent election to the National Academy of Education. Dr. Angela Rashidi is the Rose Scholar in Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where she examines poverty and the effects of federal safety net programs on low-income people in America. Her research focuses on the relationship between employment and poverty and specifically on the effectiveness of government programs and policies on increasing employment and family well-being. Our fourth panelist is Dr. Scott Winship. Scott is the Executive Director of the Joint Economic Committee of Congress. And before taking his current position, Dr. Winship held positions at the Manhattan Institute, the Brookings Institute, and the Pew Charitable Trust, where his research examined the impacts of welfare reform including the 1996 initiative on poverty and well-being. His current focus is heavily on policy and social capital and family well-being. As the title of this event indicates, our distinguished panel of experts will examine and discuss two major questions. The first is whether or not the United States is facing a food shortage crisis. Some commenters have suggested that we are. Some have even suggested we may need rationing for various products. Others are less concerned about the availability of food through the US food production and distribution supply chain. Although some supply chain interruptions seem likely what in fact are occurring. The second question involves food security and whether or not there is a hunger crisis in the COVID-19 pandemic situation we find ourselves. It is tempting to believe that if there is no major food supply issue, then there is no hunger or food insecurity problem. But that has not been the case in the United States or many other rich countries over the past 60 years. 
food plenty and food insecurity continue to coexist, uh, even when the economy is doing well. And right now, the economy is not doing well. By almost any measure, the unemployment rate has increased from about 3.6% in February of this year to over 20% right now. Almost everyone has an extended family member or close friend who has lost their job, and the impacts have been substantial for many households. Further, as in the two most recent severe recessions in the early 1980s and in the 2009 to 2011 Great Recession, the burden of unemployment falls most heavily on low-income minority communities and young people aged 16 to 20. In both 1982 and 2010, when the overall unemployment rate was about 9.6%, unemployment among young people exceeded 23%, and among the two largest minority groups, African Americans and Hispanics, ranged from 12 to 19%, much higher levels than the average. In that context, as almost everyone now recognizes, Food insecurity, hunger, and even malnutrition are concerns for the communities that we live in and that we have to address. Low-income families also spend much more of their income on food, but buy less food. On average, American families spend less than 9% of their income on food in the home and away from home, around $8,000 in 2018. Low-income families Families in the lowest 20% of the income distribution spend over 35% of their income on food, around about $4,000 a year. In his opening comments, our first panelist, Dr. Joseph Glauber, will focus on whether or not there is a food supply crisis. Dr. Diane Schansenbeck, Dr. Angela Rashidi, and Dr. Scott Winship will then address how hunger is being and should be addressed through nutrition policies like SNAP, and school lunch initiatives, income safety net programs, and public-private philanthropy partnerships like the food banks. With that brief introduction, let me now turn the podium, as it were, over to Dr. Glauber for his insights. Great. Thanks very much, Vince. Yeah, so my section here is I'm going to talk more about the farm side and what's going on in terms of the overall agricultural system. We have had a lot of disruptions over the last few weeks, certainly, and I'm just going to go through them very, very briefly. I think it's important to remember that agriculture actually has had a fairly rocky two years, first with the trade wars with a whole host of countries, including China being the most prominent, but also Mexico and Canada, the EU, which resulted in some pretty significant drop in exports and market prices for farmers. And and in general, farm income would have been far, far lower had it not been for the fact that government paid out a a massive $28 billion over the last couple of years in terms of supplemental payments. These were payments on top of the uh, price and income support programs, uh, on top of the federal crop insurance program. And if you look at farm income numbers over the last couple of years, farm income or the farm payments have been a very, very large portion of those total income. Well, with the impact of of COVID-19, you've seen two major impacts. One is the impact, direct impact on health in terms of how it's affected farm laborers, 
how it's affected the meat processing industry, which has been quite significant with many of the plants losing capacity. Essentially, if the plants have had it closed. We've been anywhere between 30% and almost 40% of, of hog processing capacity has been out. The Smith, the, one of the largest plants, Smithfield, just went back online today. But this has been a very fluid situation and, and has been very, very disruptive. The other thing is, is the impacts of the containment policies themselves, uh, the fact that people aren't able to send their kids to school, the fact that you can't go to a restaurant has meant that all, all that food, which about 50% of food expenditures are consumed away from home, all of that essentially stopped and or most of it stopped. And so not only are people having to go to the grocery store a lot more, the fact is a lot of the food that was destined for food service industries is in very different form than, than what you find on the grocery shelves. So we've had a very big disruption there. And the consequence of all of this has been higher prices, but I think we'll see some higher prices at the retail store, particularly because of the what's going on in the food processing side, the fact that we're, we'll see short-term at least higher prices there. That will have a, a bigger impact on, as Vince mentioned, the fact that poor people spend much more of their income on, on food. That will have a bigger impact there than on, on more affluent families, certainly. But then the other thing is, as, as any sort of cost that hits in the middle of the marketing chain of the instance of that also falls on producers. So they'll, we've seen very, very low prices. And if you look at since you know, the first of January, prices for most of the commodities have fallen significantly and have been off 10 to 15%. And if you look at what that meant for income, recent estimate by the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute out of Missouri, you know, noted that crop prices down 5 to 10%, livestock prices down, you know, 12, 15% or so. That means that receipts are down significantly. They project down almost $30 billion, which is quite a lot. And some of those losses are offset by the standing disaster programs. But more importantly, they saw before this CARES Act, which just was passed a couple of weeks ago, uh, came through, they were projecting farm income down about $20 billion. And that analysis didn't really take into account the disruptions we're seeing in the meat processing industry. It was mainly through a drop in corn prices due to uh, the fact that ethanol consumption is going down because people aren't driving. And in any event, Congress did react, uh, passed a $2 trillion package. Of that, about $19 billion has been, uh, the USDA has, has said that it will go out to farmers over the next few months to, to compensate for losses that were incurred essentially last quarter or the first quarter of this year plus the next two quarters. And there's an additional some odd, $14 some odd billion dollars that could be then put back in. So I think for the farm income side, you know, if you look just on the farm side, that the the compensations will probably cover the losses. The problem is we'll do it imperfectly. Some will get overcompensated. Some probably won't get compensated far too little. I think the bigger impact, however, will be what emerges out of this recession, how deep it is and how, how long it is before the recovery happens. Because one thing it, which is true about the farm household income is that 90% of it or so comes from off-farm sources. I think people oftentimes forget this, that, that the farm income side is important, but most of, of farm income comes from off-farm sources. So if we have a prolonged recession, particularly in rural areas, this could have some impacts. 
I think the supply chain disruptions are really what are in the news right now and are quite significant and are affecting all of us in terms of what we're seeing in grocery stores and other things. I think these will be short run just in the sense that presuming that COVID-19 will ultimately figure out how to put in biosafety protocols and other sorts of things. And it could be for at least one of the costs of this in the short term is higher higher prices. But again, there's no question there's ample food. It's just a question of getting into consumers. And I think that will be more of a short run issue. The longer run issue, though, I think is a recession. And I think it'll be a lot what people are going to be talking about in the next few minutes. So I will stop there, Vince. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thanks, Joe. I'm going to turn to Diane Schansenbeck now, Dr. Schansenbeck. You have the you have the stage, as it were. Thank you very much. So thanks for setting this up so nicely. Of course, we're facing this double whammy of having the health crisis along with the economic crisis and then the two interacting. Just wanted to underscore that 30 million workers filed for unemployment insurance over the last six weeks, nearly 10 times the worst period that we faced during the Great Recession. Um, this Congressional Budget Office predicts that the unemployment rate might be raised above 10% for the next 18 months. So we are going to see a recession here like you know, we haven't seen, certainly in my lifetime, maybe not even in Vince's. <laughs> Thank uh, you so much. <laughs> what, something that we know well from our studies of prior recession is that low-income folks lose their jobs first, although in this case, everybody lost their jobs at the same time, but they recover more slowly. It took fully a decade to regain the jobs that were lost during the Great Recession. So last week, we got our first, I think, systematic glimpse at how households are coping with, uh, with the COVID crisis. Uh, this came from the COVID impact survey that was jointly fielded from the Minneapolis Fed and another organization that I, I forget right now. But what we learned from that is that food insecurity rates have tripled. 42% of families with kids reported that they were worried that their food would run out, not because of supply chain problems, but because they didn't have enough money to buy more. 28% of families overall reported food insecurity. Of course, this whole crisis is being made worse because kids are missing their school meals, which are usually the front line of defense against childhood hunger. Our safety net, um, you know, just hasn't been prepared for something this quick, you know, and we're struggling to respond, of course, at the same time that states are needing to work to protect their own frontline workers, move to telework, et cetera. You know, I think that the states are doing, you know, the best that they can, but we've been struggling to keep up with things. So Congress and the Department of Agriculture, I would say, have implemented smart and temporary fixes, like extending the current SNAP caseload so they don't have to go in to recertify right now, and streamlining some benefits calculations. They also made some smart, what I hope will be permanent fixes, such as telephonic signatures for applications and allowing SNAP participants to use their, their benefits to purchase online. They've also had some slow responses on some aspects. For example, um, there were relatively slow approvals of 
cash payments that Congress authorized to replace missing school meals. That's called the PEBT program. I think we're up to 11 states now have been authorized to provide those payments. Those are really important because not everyone who gets free or reduced price meals at school is also on SNAP. And so there's sort of a large number of kids who are falling through the cracks. And, you know, while school districts, you know, went to heroic efforts to stand up meal, you know, feeding sites, there were all sorts of problems with those. Participation was low, in part because, you know, people are being told to stay home. And so it doesn't make sense, you know, to go out. So I think that was, that's good policy. And it's, we'd like to see it sort of move out more quickly, this PEBT program. So back to the COVID impact study, we've learned that as of two weeks ago, about 14% of households have applied for or received SNAP, and about 8% have gone to a food pantry for, uh, for food support. Of course, I want to uh, pivot and talk a little bit more about SNAP. SNAP is really important when it comes to making sure that families have adequate uh, resources to buy the foods that they need. And it's a really important tool in times of recession because these are paid out as monthly benefits. So families you know, have access to them quickly and they can, under normal circumstances, apply for SNAP and receive benefits quickly. SNAP is well-designed. It meets needs that families have to buy groceries and it also stimulates the economy, which is going to be something that we need, you know, as we move out of the acute public health crisis in the coming weeks or months or however long it takes and move to sort of the economic recovery. So to my mind, an increase in benefits will be a very important aspect of the recovery. During the Great Recession, Congress increased benefits by 15%. And that was quite effective last time, both in terms of protecting families from food insecurity, but also stimulating the economy. Um, as Joe suggested, if prices go up, we might actually need more here. And just the extent of the recession here also suggests to me that we might, 15% might be the sort of lower bar that we need for this. And of course, there's a limit to how much you can do through SNAP. I would love to see us continue to protect children. Like I mentioned, 42% of households with children reported food insecurity in April. Uh, so I'd love to see us extend this cash benefits in, in lieu of school meals, the PEBT program. It's really unfortunately named PEBT. Extend that through the summer potentially add a young child multiplier onto SNAP to make sure that children are getting enough food or at least have enough resources to, to buy food. We know that there are long-term negative outcomes from kids at particular ages not having access to adequate food. It's very important that we do our best in this time of acute recession to protect kids. So Sort of the last point that I wanted to make before turning it over uh, to the other panelists is we primarily have a work-based safety net in the United States, and that has many advantages in economic, in good economic times. So we have the earned income tax credit, SNAP, increasing fractions of people on SNAP are, are also working. But what we learned during the Great Recession is that there are big holes in that safety net when we're experiencing economic downturns. So we do also need to be thinking about other ways to boost cash resources to low-income families. Now, we think that some of the changes uh, in unemployment insurance that were done through the CARES Act will help some families that are experiencing food insecurity and also um, on SNAP. 
But there are many people that are falling through the cracks, um, you know, immigrants, homeless. Certainly, I think we should be talking about extending some emergency TANF funds, which haven't been done, um, to provide cash assistance uh, to families, like I said, who are falling through the cracks of the safety net. One final word, uh, to be sure, right now is a terrible time to be enforcing work requirements on programs like SNAP and Medicaid. And I know that those were temporarily suspended, but my one concern that I have is that people will want to bring those back too quickly after the acute crisis is gone. Like I said, the economy is going to take much longer to recover, even after we you know, have the stay-at-home orders lifted and so on. So we should be extremely concerned about food insecurity right now. And the fact that we have a fragmented safety net that is only imperfectly responding. Thank you, Diane. For some perspectives on the effectiveness of other safety net programs beyond the food-oriented programs, let's turn to Dr. Rashidi. The floor is yours, Dr. Rashidi. Yes, thank you. Um, And thank you, Vince, for putting this panel together and to my colleagues for providing your insight as well. So yes, as Vince said, I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the other income programs that are available to help families get through this crisis. So Diane touched a little bit on some of the data, but um, just to provide context, so in typical times, so before this crisis in any given year, there's roughly about 12 to maybe 15% of households on surveys that indicate they're food insecure. And so what that means is, It doesn't necessarily mean hunger in the sense that they cut back on food because of income, but it does mean that they have indicated on a survey that they worry about where food is going to come from, that they struggle to afford the types of foods they think are are most nutritious for their family and things like that. So certainly families or households that struggle to afford food. And then we have about, again, this is in a typical year, about 5% of households that have what we call very low food insecurity. And those are the households that do actually cut back on food because they can't afford food. Fortunately, in the US, children are largely protected from that the very low food security, but we do still have about 5% of households that suffer from very low food security. So you can imagine in a crisis like this with such high unemployment that those families are particularly vulnerable, but then you also have all of these other families that due to job loss also become vulnerable and might fall into that group. The most vulnerable, given the current crisis, are obviously low-income families who don't have access to savings, credit, things like that, that can, that can kind of weather the job loss that they're experiencing, get them through that time before they can either get employment again or they can get access to other supports. So those are our typical low-income families. According to a Pew survey, I think, that was put out a few weeks ago, about 55% of low-income families had reported some sort of job loss or reduced hours, which just shows you that those already vulnerable families in typical times are even more vulnerable right now. And I think we've all heard the statistics about the percentage of families that don't have savings and things that they can access during a crisis. I think some of those data are a little bit unclear, but it's anywhere from about 20% to 40% of households say that they don't have access to cash or other means to get them through a crisis. So the government does provide some programs beyond SNAP that I think can be very useful to families during this time. 
I mean, one Diane mentioned, which is unemployment insurance. And I think we've all kind of seen the news and we know that that's really on the top of people's minds in terms of the expanded unemployment insurance that provides uh, $600 per week in addition, additional unemployment insurance benefits on top of what workers or former workers would have gotten already. There also were some other expansions in unemployment insurance for people who wouldn't typically be eligible for unemployment insurance. And that's like gig workers, part-time workers, and, and low-income workers tend to fall into that category. So as part of the CARES Act, some of these low-income households that wouldn't normally get unemployment insurance hopefully got access to unemployment insurance, and that should help them through this crisis in terms of helping them to afford food. I think some of the concern, obviously, around UI is just the ability to access it quickly. States are dealing with unprecedented number of claims and just old systems and the ability to get those checks to people. And that just creates some food security issues for those families, again, that wouldn't have the resources to kind of get them through that period. The other, other kind of main income transfer program, which is actually a relatively small program compared to some of the other programs in terms of like SNAP and, and EITC and things like that, but it is TANF. Diane mentioned that. So again, in typical times, TANF is primarily for low-income families who are not working, low-income families with children. Mostly single mother households with children receive TANF, although low-income married couples uh, are eligible as well. And so this also can serve as a resource during this time for unemployed families who have faced unemployment. The thing with TANF, it's kind of two competing forces, I think, going on with TANF right now. On one hand, TANF is actually, it's a little bit easier to get in the sense that all the requirements that are typically a part of TANF in terms of work requirements, uh, requirements to do activities have been uh, eliminated across the states. And so families do not have to really satisfy any of those requirements in order to be eligible. But on the other hand, the expansion of unemployment insurance may make TANF less necessary for certain families if they get access to that unemployment insurance. But either way, certainly TANF can serve as a resource to low-income families during this crisis and to help them with their food needs. The other main program is the Earned Income Tax Credit, which really is the, it's kind of the second largest anti-poverty program in terms of dollars that go to low-income families. Unfortunately, it's not effective at all in this crisis because the Earned Income Tax Credit is only provided once per year to low-income families as a cash transfer, but it's only provided at tax time. And I think that that is kind of, it's our main tool for fighting poverty, but it's really not, well, obviously, a completely ineffective tool during this period to, to address food needs of low-income families. I think there's some things that Congress could consider in terms of the earned income tax credit, such as doing an emergency EITC or doing a supplement like the stimulus that was provided earlier, but so far Congress has not, not done that. Those are the main cash transfer programs for low-income families. There's also a number of other opportunities for low-income families, like even the, the PPP, the, the small business um, loans. So if you have like childcare providers, which tend to be low-income families that might run their own family daycare out of their home, they would be eligible for PPP funds. And so I think that there are a number of opportunities for low-income families to get access to resources to help them through this time. The critical point is, however, how these programs are being implemented and how much access these families are actually getting to these programs. 
we know from some survey data that some of these families do not seem to be accessing all the programs that they may be eligible for. And some of that is just the slow nature of how these programs get implemented. And some of that is because states largely have the responsibility for administering many of these programs. And states have just been bombarded with families coming to them who are in need. And so I think it's understandable to give states a little bit of leeway in terms of implementing these programs. I, I just wanted to end with a couple of thoughts, um, maybe some concerns I have in, in how low-income families are weathering the crisis in terms of their food needs. One is related to SNAP. I mean, obviously, I think Congress did a really good job in trying to address all the needs that there were for SNAP. There's some concerns, though, how low-income families might have access to food. So obviously, many of us have turned to maybe online shopping. I think that's much more difficult for low-income families and especially if they're going to use their SNAP benefits. There are some opportunities for households to use SNAP benefits to online shop, but it's somewhat limited by state and also limited by connectivity for those families. And I think, obviously, families also have less access to credit cards and credit and things like that, and just some of the concerns that I have around how they are actually shopping and getting access to food. And then finally, I'll just mention, um, I mean, Diane covered uh, SNAP uh, pretty well, but in terms of um, really, so like I said, Congress did a good job, I think, in addressing the needs of low-income families through SNAP, but again, it's an issue of implementation. So it is very concerning that only 11 or whatever it is states have done the pandemic EBT, which is to provide additional SNAP resources into families with school-age children. I um, hope that states... Uh, are able to do that at a much greater extent. And then the other is Congress passed an emergency allotment for SNAP, which basically allows states to bring all SNAP households up to the maximum benefit. Almost all states, I think it's about 42 or 45 states have implemented that, but I've heard that it's been rather slow in actually getting those dollars into households. And so I think it requires all of us and policymakers in particular and really figuring out what are some of those implementation challenges and really helping states get over those hurdles. Angela, thank you. So now I'm going to turn last but definitively not least uh, to Dr. Winship for his insights and thoughts on issues that have been raised in the discussion. Well, thanks, Vince, and it's a pleasure to be on the panel with such great folks. I should say up front that nothing that I say should be construed as reflecting the views of anyone on the Joint Economic Committee or Senator Lee, who I work for. These are all my own, my own thoughts uh, personally. So I think that thinking about this as a crisis, or at least a potential crisis, it's not clear that we yet have a food supply crisis or a hunger crisis. We want to make sure we avoid those things. Thinking about it as a crisis is, is important and useful for distinguishing where we've been from where we are uh, and for distinguishing the sorts of policies that I think we ought to pursue. Um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge up front, just reiterating what Diane said about the unprecedented nature of, of kind of what we're up against in terms of the unemployment figures. And, and if we end up seeing similar uh, unprecedented levels of poverty or, or hunger, that would be a real tragedy Fortunately, I don't think that we will, but, but nevertheless, it's important not to be complacent about that. So where we've been, on the other hand, I think, is a little bit better than what's commonly understood. I think a, a problem with the word crisis is that it's used too much. And so when it's actually appropriate to use, as is currently the case, 
it, it loses its weight because a lot of people have been saying for a long time that we've had sort of a poverty crisis or whatever. And I think it's I think it's just important to understand that on the eve of the pandemic, things were a lot better than than most people think. Poverty was almost certainly at an all time low by any reasonable definition of poverty, which the official poverty rate uh, would not uh, count under that. But the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, for instance, said as early as 2016 that that child poverty was at an all-time low. The food insecurity data that's out there, the the U.S. Department of Agriculture maintains the best set of numbers that's there. And the last report they put out was for 2018. At that point, 11% of Americans were food insecure that compared to in 2001, which is the first year that's that's comparable, it's 11% in 2001, so, so no change over time. That conclusion holds if you look at households with kids. It holds if you look at female-headed households with kids. It holds if you look at very low food insecurity. So, so not big declines in, in food problems by any stretch, but not any increases either. And in 2019 and early 2020, that was probably, those numbers were probably even a little bit better. There are a number of reasons for that. We probably don't want to get into them on this panel. Um, There were periods of strong economic growth. There were certainly SNAP expansions, especially in 2008, 2009. There were other safety net expansions, some good, some not so great. And there was welfare reform, which in my view and the view of a bunch of others actually did serve to reduce poverty over, over this period as well. All of that said, you know, even in 2018, over a third of poor households were food insecure, according to the USDA measure. A quarter of African-American families with kids were food insecure. There were reasons to be concerned about food insecurity prior to the current pandemic, for sure. But if we're talking about crises, if Diane's numbers, which may or may not be directly comparable to these numbers I'm citing, on food insecurity are true, you know, we're looking at like a, a doubling food insecurity already, which as Angela points out, may have more to do with anxiety than with actual hunger. Uh, but nevertheless, that's a dramatic increase in a very short period of time that we'd want to be concerned about. All of that to, to bring back the point about thinking in terms of, of crises and how that ought to affect the way we think about policy. In the Great Recession, if you look at comprehensive poverty measures, it turns out we did a pretty good job of preventing poverty from skyrocketing during that period. It actually increased by quite a bit less than it had in the early 1990s recession, for instance, the early 1980s recessions. So anti-poverty policy has, has gotten better over time at responding to recessions. And I think that it's on track to do that this time. Angela went through a bunch of the UI provisions um, that have already been passed. SNAP, there's there's been uh, some important initiatives passed as well. But here I also want to point out the distinction between policies that people wanted before we entered an actual crisis and policies that are appropriate now that we are on the verge of a crisis. Because I think that there are some ideas being thrown around that, that don't necessarily make a ton of sense. It makes sense to me that in a massive recession, that we would want more people to have access to the SNAP program, for instance. It doesn't make more sense to me necessarily that people who are receiving SNAP benefits ought to get a lot more in benefits than than they did in the past. I think there are a lot of arguments being thrown around by folks on the center left along the lines of we need to expand the maximum benefits available to, to SNAP families without really explaining why that is something that is appropriate for this particular crisis. 
one explanation that I think is really compelling that I've not heard enough of, I think, is this issue of kids not being able to access school nutrition programs because of the school closures and the stay-at-home orders. The PEBT program that Diane and Angela both mentioned, I think, is a really important policy change. And that's the sort of argument where you can say something has changed versus the way the world was two months ago, and it necessitates some kind of policy change. I think that would be a really important way to go. On work requirements, you know, what, what we did in the Great Recession, I think, was appropriate, giving states the ability to waive work requirements if they meet conditions that are tied to the emergency unemployment compensation benefits that were available. Something like that makes a lot of sense now, I think. But it is important to remember, too, that we're really only talking about you know, seven and seven or eight percent of the population when we're talking about SNAP beneficiaries who are actually subject to work requirements. So, so far, I, I think the policy response has been pretty good. I think the crisis has exposed potentially an issue that merits a lot of thinking over the longer term about policy, which is whether it's a good idea or not, or what the pros and cons are of delivering lunches and breakfasts to kids via our educational institutions. You can imagine other policies that could be effective that would involve more generous SNAP benefits, for instance, or something like that. But clearly that's that's a way in which kind of a, a little bit of a strange kludge in terms of our previous policies has really been problematic for the crisis. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.